This week's episode is brought to you by Stephanie, Roderick Dixon, Darb, John Michael, Michelle vs. Lewis, Zachariah Martin, and Josh Braddock. Thank you, Stephanie, Roderick Dixon, Darb, John Michael, Nashville vs. Lewis, Zachariah Martin, and Josh Braddock? Wow. It's with the generous support of listeners like you that helps keep our ambitious team of psionic radar operators sweeping the ocean floor with astral laser beams to identify new and exciting threats to our home planet that can simultaneously be used as ingredients in our sacred sushi bar for spies, stocked with freshly source tentacles from the Lovecraftian monstrosities we find on the ocean floor. If you'd like to help us keep our psychic spies sourcing monster eggs for monster sushi rolls or just hear the second half of this episode, then please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit where your monthly donation of just five bucks will not only get you instantaneous access to our library of extended episodes stretching back before the roaring 20s, I'll send you a five by five high quality three Michelin star vinyl sticker of our big bunny Baphomet Cover art at no additional cost, and you'll even get the secret keys to our Discord server where our team of rabbits slurp noodles in perpetuity. If you're enjoying the free section of the show just fine and would rather save your five bucks for a two-for-one special generic brand onion powder, then please consider giving us a like, subscribe, or share the podcast with a friend who you know would enjoy listening to something as weird as you do. By doing this, you sure the whole rabbit continues to grow so that we can make our podcast something we're capable of devoting more and more time to, which is something we want to do. For those of you interested in getting a tarot reading from yours truly, there is a $20 tier on our Patreon, which makes you eligible for a tarot reading each month you're subscribed. It's kind of fun, too. Then, a little bit of news up top, as you may already know, or maybe not, Heka Astra and myself are getting married. It's been a long time in the works because the path for Canadians to legally immigrate to the U.S. is very drawn out, and the next week or two I will be traveling to accomplish some business in this department. If there is a delay in our release schedule, please bear with us. We are not stopping work on research for our next episode. We'll do our best to keep it on track as possible because I hate taking breaks from our regular release schedule. On this note, if you're rolling in dough and looking for something to throw money at, I've included my PayPal below to help us financially endure this immigration process, which all considered is expensive AF. Lastly, if you want to be ready for the next episode, go back and give the original animated Lion King a rewatch because your childhood is about to get ruined. On this week's episode, we give into the temptation to keep exploring the underlying mythological motifs shared by the archetypal eagle and serpent, while giving the occasional wink and nod to the alien overlord conspiracy theory that spirals out of it. During the free section of the show, we take an in-depth look at the Greek god of healing to which medical professionals still take their Hippocratic oath, the serpent-bearing son of Apollo named Asclepius. We discuss the myth of his birth, the interesting modes of dedication and worship at his temples, his emblematic rod entwined with a serpent, his inappropriately horny uncle Ixion, the flaming serpents of the Bible, and the ancient Egyptian perspective on the serpent-eagle dichotomy with some surprising links to popular culture. In the extended episode, we discuss what the constellation of Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer, has to do with the serpent of Genesis, before exploring the symbolism of the phoenix, and finally comparing our findings in this series to a leak found on 4chan regarding the top secret military programs dedicated to monitoring the ongoing UFO threat, possibly of Sumerian origin. Thank you, and enjoy the show.
What do you call a snake who works as an administrator? What? A civil serpent. <laughs> Why don't bald eagles tell knock-knock jokes? Why? Because freedom rings. <laughs> <laughs> an eagle and a tropical bird were playing on the computer. The eagle lost. Who can play that game? Oh. Uh, Did you know there's a church for eagles? They are birds of prey after all. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everybody, and welcome to the Whole Rabbit, where we don't just tell you about the mighty Anunnaki overlords of Sumerian mythology, only to tell you we're caught in the middle of a battle between the alien god who created us and his brother who wants to use us as living butt puppet slaves and inject us with monkey DNA so it hurts when we pee. Nay, we gently uncoil the serpent from the staff of medicine, put a tiny hat on his little head and let the feller whisper his forked tongue secrets directly into our lepian earfolds because this week we're discussing the rod of Asclepius as we dive into the esoteric anatomy of the serpent and the eagle. So it's kind of like a part two. I'm your host, Luke Madrid, also known as the Hack Rabbit. I'm joined this week by the holy dog of the hospital, Marisama. Bark, bark. The midnight medicine monster, Malachor 5. Whatcha buying? And the hawk-eyed hellion of healing. Hecka Astra. Hello. So this week we were really strapped for time and thought we would do a free discussion episode, but lo and behold, we couldn't stay away from the eagle versus serpent dichotomy and what it all means. So here we are, part two. Yeah, there's just, like I said, last episode, there's so much to say about it and couldn't just leave it alone. Because in my free section part, I was going to just be like, hey, I got some more things to say, but we kind of just turned it into a whole bit here. This topic is definitely one of my favorites of all time. And it surprised me because it just keeps giving and giving and giving. Because at first, it seems a little cheesy, but then when you zoom in and you start to look around, it's actually got some legs. Snakes don't have legs. Some of them do. <laughs> right, and this is the kind of joke thing on the topic that is, you know, Jesus is the snake. And I guess for some reason, a lot of esoteric Christians really, really want to hear about that. At least I did when I first caught wind of how all this stacks on top of each other and makes sense. But like I said, it's, it's one of my favorite topics ever. And it's one that I think that every time I'm talking, you should keep this discussion in mind with some of the things I say, because it's coming from that perspective and a little bit of understanding of what this all means. Even if I'm guilty of acting too much like an eagle or a serpent at different times, I try to marry the two ideas. I had heard the true meaning of America had something to do with a feathered serpent. So a combination of these two energies. Right. The Mesoamerican people had a deity called a Maru that was actually like a bird, snake, dragon thing that if you look it up on the Wikipedia page of Omaru, it was the demiurge of their world. Oh, whoa. And some people say like, no, the original name of America is actually based off of this creature, Amaru, America. Like they changed it. It's not named after Columbus after all. No, I'm totally down with this. And Quetzalcoatl himself is a bit of a winged serpent too. Yeah, a lot of those gods were. So I thought it was important to focus on something we brought up relatively briefly last episode the rod of Asclepius and of course the strange similarities it has all over Abrahamic religion and this is an icon literally if you didn't know what the rod of Asclepius is it's that snake on a stick that's usually over an eight-pointed star that you'll see on ambulances isn't it a symbol of mercury too it's often confused with the caduceus which is oh. a rod with two snakes which to be fair has some overlapping meaning and besides that Hermes himself has a role to play in a few parts of Asclepius mythology. But you do see the caduceus on medical buildings just the same. They're very similar, but they have different stories. So today we're going to talk about a stick 
with one twirling snake or creature upon it. And I think that's a good idea because so often the rod of Asclepius is overshadowed by the caduceus. But as we'll learn today, it has its own depth and history and meaning. So I guess it's important to ask, who is Asclepius? Well, you might be tempted to think that a god of healing would be conceived from rainbows and spice and everything nice. Asclepius heralds from the pantheon of Greek gods, however, which means, to stay on brand, his existence owes itself to the dramatic interplay of lust, jealousy, vengeance, and remorse. I mean, that's what Greek gods do. They hump things and kill things and... Get jealous of stuff. Yeah. Kill some more stuff. They're relatable. And when a new problem arises, just appoint a new god to deal with it and go back to what you were doing before. And invariably, it creates even more problems at the end of that story. Which is a fairly honest summation of how things work in the universe. At least the human one. So this story begins with a lady named Coronis, a Thessalian princess, daughter of Phlegyas and sister of Ixion, both kings of Lapithus, a legendary first tribe of Thessaly. So a galaxy far, far away a long time ago in Greece. Back when Greece actually had money. Oh, snap. So before we talk about Coronis, her brother Ixion is famous mostly for his enduring treachery. When Ixion was betrothed to Dia, he refused to pay her father Dionysus a bridal dowry, which resulted in his new stepfather stealing his horses. This made Ixion exceedingly angry, but pretending to be none the wiser, invited Dionysus over for dinner. When his stepfather arrived for the feast, Ixion promptly threw him into a pit of burning wood and coal. <laughs> It was quite the scene. Everyone, including himself, was utterly mortified, and the neighboring princesses refused to perform ritual sacraments capable of cleansing Ixion of his horrible act. Thereafter, despite his former kingly status, Ixion was outlawed and shunned. This, mythologically speaking, makes Ixion the first mortal considered guilty of kin slaying, at least in Greek culture, making him similar to Cain from the Bible. The big difference here is that, aside from killing a member of his own family, an additional subtraction of brownie points was given for doing so in violation of Xenia, which is a word that indicates a form of ritual hospitality or friendship for one's guests, a bedrock custom of Greek culture. You know, like Christian hospitality or Southern hospitality. Yeah. Now, Ixion's guilt was so intense that he eventually went totally mad. <laughs> And even though he was still deserving of punishment, Zeus, known for having a bit of a temper himself, took pity on Ixion and invited him to a dinner banquet on Mount Olympus. Even still, Ixion could not handle himself and began giving Zeus's wife Hera the f*** me eyes when nobody was looking. Understandably, Zeus was a little more than pissed off when he began to suspect what was going on. After all, Zeus would never cheat on his wife. <clears throat> in response to expose sly Ixion, Zeus formed a figure of Hera in the clouds, which enticed Ixion to attempt copulating with it. When he did so, the fake Hera made of clouds, or Nephili, as she is sometimes known, bore the race of centaurs. So this is where the big horse people men came from, this weird sky humping at dinner. That's weird. Now, for this act of treachery, Zeus blasted Ixion from the sky with a lightning bolt and ordered Hermes to bind him to a flaming wheel to be paraded across the sky for all eternity until everybody got sick of looking at it and it was eventually moved to gloomy Hades, where only Eurydice's music would ever briefly halt the endless and tormented spinning. So Ixion got team rocketed by Pikachu, just yeeted. <laughs> Yes. I'm starting to think that Pikachu in Pokemon is actually uh, a mouse version of Zeus. You know, when I was a kid, he had a little black spot at the end of his tail. 
Yep. He don't have that no more. In fact, he never did. Because we're not from that universe. It's a Mandela effect, yeah. I see white people. It's Mandala effect. Oh. I don't know why you guys say Mandela. Well, it's I said Mandela. Mandela. Like, it's like Nelson Mandela. It's Nelson nah, Mandela effect, yeah. No, nah, it's like Mandala, like Mandala. Bro, stop it. <laughs> Google it. <sighs> and then if you look and it says Mandala, you're in my universe. Then I'm in trouble, <laughs> yeah. That's the name of a future band of mine, probably. Birdstein Bears! Birdstein Bears! <laughs> <laughs> Now, while Asclepius's uncle, Ixion, would become known for his treachery, what about his mother, Coronis? Her involvement with the gods came about the way a decent number of other mortal women would, by minding her own business, when she was suddenly caught in the gaze of Apollo, who was subsequently unable to resist his burning desire to bed her, which he did inside her home. Filled with Apollo's super sperm, Coronis became pregnant, and Apollo left to go attend to his godly duties. For a while, all was well, until Coronis, still pregnant with Apollo's child, fell in love with the mortal Ichis, a name which means strength. Despite her father's warning to the contrary, Coronis was unable to curb her desire for Ichis, and the two began an affair in secret. This, as her father had warned, was a terrible idea. Apollo, after all, was possessed of the gift of prophecy, which was regularly delivered to him on the wings of a white crow. When his feathered friend delivered the news of the affair between Coronis and Ichis, his glare became so full of rage that the crow's feathers would permanently be scorched black. And that's why crows are black? Yes. Oh no. Now either in response, or at Apollo's order, his twin sister Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and of childbirth, retaliated for the dishonor by killing Coronis and her family with a barrage of deadly arrows. In some versions of the myth, it's like a reactive thing for Apollo to do. He grabs his bow and just shoots off an arrow and kills his woman. And it's, it's like with tears in his eyes, but it's like a weird godly compulsion to do so because he's been like disrespected and he immediately regrets it because it's like against his true will, but it's like his, his function that he's in the universe for. And the myth kind of becomes a little bit more romantic that way because he, then he has a reason to do what we're about to talk about. I just think it's so cute that his sister loves him so much that she would kill Apollo's side chick just because because she cheated on him. That's love. I think it's possible that Artemis could still remain innocent in, in so doing, you know, like. Right. At some point, it's like Apollo put out a hunt, you know, contract yeah. for this woman. And Artemis is the god to do that. So she was compelled to like almost against her will, maybe, you know, just like I was saying now that Apollo also can shoot an arrow pretty well. And in some versions, he was sad about it. So this arrow mortally wounds Coronis, but before terminally croaking, she acknowledges her punishment was just. And this leaves Apollo completely smitten with remorse. He feels bad about it. Overwhelmed with grief, Apollo attempts to heal Coronis, but it's too late. She's already dead. Apollo then takes her body back to his temple, dresses it with sweet herbs, and just as he places her on the funerary pyre, he realizes that he doesn't also want to hurt his unborn child. In some versions, he sets it aflame and then he remembers, like, after a while that he's got a kid in there that has nothing to do with this. That's what it seems like. She's got a bun in the oven and he's about to toast it. Oh, God. So what does he do? Well, at the last moment, he cuts her belly open and delivers his new 
newborn child, Asclepius. In some versions, it's Hermes who compels Apollo to save Asclepius, who is then suckled by the thread-measuring Lachesis, the middle sister of the Mori, or Fates as they're more commonly known. In either case, Apollo took young Asclepius and tutored him in the way of herbalism before entrusting him to the care of Chiron, who then trained him in both the art of hunting and healing. And it's said that Asclepius was, in fact, a great hunter. His aunt is Artemis, his father's Apollo, and he's trained by the centaur Chiron, but he really had an affinity for healing and medicines and the works of healing people. So he had great teachers, and apparently he got so good at healing, he actually transcended Apollo, Artemis, and Chiron. And that's important because he was born mortal. He wasn't born a god. He earned this through passing these trials almost. He went to school, you can say, and got his degrees. Or he joined the order and got his degrees in the order. And we have a lot of information about Asclepius's cult. This is because, of course, everybody loved him. We know what kind of animals he preferred to have sacrificed, how the temple layout was, why things were there. A lot of this stuff was preserved for a very, very long time and is very much in the current of known history. His earliest worship sites date back to around 500 BC, which is when scholars believe Asclepius replaced Apollo, his father, as the god of medicine. And his temples were built all across the Greek map, but the main one was found at Epidaurus. And it was here, in some myths, that his mother abandoned him on the side of a mountain with a goat and a dog. It was because she did live to have him in some versions of the myth. Later, baby Asclepius that's left on the side of a mountain with a goat and a dog is found by the goat herder Arathanus. And his temples were akin to a hospital at the time. It was also here where one could bring sacrificial offerings to Asclepius, and he really, really liked roosters as sacrifices. And one thing that I thought was interesting, the forest that surrounded his temples, it was forbidden to have anybody die there or to give birth in those sacred areas. Interesting. Yeah. Because there was a goddess of birth, and it wasn't Asclepius. You gotta call her in. Alithia. I'm surprised that's not a brand of bottled water. Alithia, it'll make you pregnant. <laughs> and wet, ready to go with Alithia. <laughs> birthing lubricant slides right out but speaking of ways to worship asclepius it actually comes up in the story of socrates at his final moments in fact right so socrates's last word before the hemlock took hold was quote titero we owe a cock to asclepius pay it therefore and do not neglect it dies that's socrates everybody even he knew that he had to sacrifice a cock <laughs> to asclepius don't neglect the cock now. Well, he just got done giving this epic monologue and explaining his whole purpose and morals this and philosophy that and everyone's sitting around weeping and then it's all it's like, wait a minute, hold on, I'm back. Wait, gotta kill a cock for Asclepius. Okay, I'm out, bye. So, you know, killing a rooster or slaying a cock, doing so would, of course, please Asclepius. And when Asclepius was nice, happy, he would bless humanity with his healing powers and his agents would be his priests that were devoted to him at his temples. In if you didn't keep Asclepius happy, well, plagues and sickness and probably rats would infest your whole civilization and you'd be f***ed. So at these sites, they played nice music. And they would burn special aromas or have flowers all over in a garden. They'd give you oil massages, which were made from medicinal plants, of course. That sounds great. They didn't have what we have today, so they did the best they could. And I think that is honestly still today the best you can do for somebody who is dying. And Asclepius, he didn't always have the ability to save your life because that's a problematic issue is to just prevent you from dying, of course. But he knew how to make you feel good in your final moments if he did care for you, if you did make him happy. So... 
at the very least, you would want your final moments, and Socrates knew this too, you would want your final moments to be like, hey, Asclepius, you're my boy, take care of me. Now, he had temples all across Greece, and something that was found at all of them, and they proliferated this, was the presence of non-venomous snakes, which slithered everywhere they pleased. There's even a species named the Asclepian snake honoring the god, and it's kind of like yellow and brown, gold looking. Can you imagine staying in a hospital where snakes are just roaming about? I suppose it would keep most people in their beds, you know, so they could heal. I'd rather be in a hospital full of snakes than mice. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And apparently these snakes had full freedom to slither all over your unconscious body because you were just in so much pain you couldn't do anything about it. Or you were just told to stay still for your little splinter in your finger that you thought you were going to die from because you're a little baby. These snakes were sacred. You couldn't touch them and they had full freedom to go wherever they pleased. You know, you couldn't really have cats because the temples of Asclepius also had sacred dogs which would lick the wounds of his ailing visitors. And it would rouse up the dogs, I bet, which is not part of the healing process. <laughs> so if you mindlessly killed any of these animals that were sacred to Asclepius, like a snake, probably a dog at the site, or a rooster without declaring it was for Asclepius, this would piss them off. And if you did so and the people knew about it, you'd immediately be put to death to save everyone else from the wrath of Asclepius. <laughs> Whoa. That might be some uh, Roman propaganda because the Romans venerated the god of a slightly different name. They tried to make the Greek sound like barbaric, but that is written by a few writers of the time. Now, where does the rod come from? How does he get a rod with a snake on it? What does that mean? Right. So in one of the more popular myths, Asclepius had to bring a man named Glaucus back to life. But the thing about Asclepius is that he didn't know how to do these things. He didn't have the power naturally. He learned medicine. Yeah, he's not like some god who can just snap his fingers and bring him back. No, he was born a mortal man. So he's standing there pondering how he's going to fix and heal Glaucus and bring him back to life, right? In some stories, he's tapping his stick on the ground. And then a snake comes into his vicinity and he accidentally repeatedly squashes a snake's head until it dies. And he kind of doesn't notice until another snake comes into the scene and places a plant or an herb on top of the head of the dead snake. And then shortly after, the dead snake comes back to life and is well again. Whoa. In other versions of this, same story, the first snake twists itself around Asclepius' staff and he reactively bonks it until it dies. And then a second snake comes and resurrects the dead snake. Chicken, no rice. No rice, chicken. Either way, Asclepius then took a book out of the snake's page and successively brought Glaucus back to life with the very same plant. Oh. A little bit like hair of the dog, you know? And you know, it actually makes a lot of sense because the ancient Greek word for poison, pharmakon, was also the word used to describe drugs or medicine. So referring to, say, the venom of a snake. Yes. Now, combining the serpent with the staff is also something we find from Bronze Age Egypt, where a famous 13th century BCE relief depicts Thoth, giving life to the deceased Seti I in the Temple of Abydos. He holds two staffs in his left hand, each one with a winding cobra about it, each wearing a miniature royal headdress representing Upper and Lower Egypt respectively, while raising its upper body in the typical Uraeus posture with a splayed hood. Yeah, the Abydosian mystery, as it's called, is definitely majority of the reason why I enjoy this eagle serpent topic because this whole resurrection power is quite powerful and a little mysterious in all religion across the planet. Well, we had Tim chime in last week telling us that the serpent is related to Thoth. 
And it's like, well, okay, how and why? Well, here it is. You know, if this serpent god has its origins in Thoth, who's responsible for the same thing, well, I guess Thoth is on the side of the serpent, quote unquote. Right. And that's just evidence that this style of staff or a rod with a single serpent wound around it is not exclusive to the Greeks. No. It's very, very old. As usual, they got it from Egypt. Now, you have a very interesting theory about what this might mean besides the mythology that we're familiar with. This is a good time to take a second look and really take a critical perspective at the symbol that is the rod of Asclepius. Yes, what might it actually be? So besides the Greek myth, there has always been an alternate origin story of the rod with the snake or a worm wrapped around it and its close relationship to healing itself. In the Bible, there's also plenty parts that mention fiery serpents and how they're a plague upon God's chosen people. It's Bible time. Bible time. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 8, it says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And this is something that Jesus Christ Christ also compares himself to in the canonical Gospels, but Malachor has a theory about what else this may mean. The interesting part of this whole thing, of course, is the fiery serpents section. I know I might piss some people off, but many people take the Bible as a 100% accurate, literally true historical document. I'm not one to think that way personally, but it's an example here in this verse that I think is quite clearly talking about something that is actually literal. Dun, dun, dun. Ever heard of the guinea worm or guinea worm disease? Guinea oh. worm, yeah. That's racist. Oh, yeah. It's a parasitic worm that burrows its way into your skin and goes through a metamorphosis inside of your body. Just like love. Ultimately, the worm needs to find an exit and it makes its way down to your legs and starts to eat its way out of the bottom of your foot. <gasps> And it's very painful and gross, and it meant a quite a bit of suffering was ahead of you since you wouldn't be able to walk very much in that condition. It burrows through your leg the long ways, and then down out your foot? That's like the furthest it could possibly go. Yeah, it's pretty f***ed up. It still exists today in parts of the world. <gasps> the scientific name for this parasitic worm is Dracunculus medinsius, which means little dragon from Medina. These parasitic worms have been documented as early as the 15th century BC in Egypt. This is the fiery serpent that the Bible must be talking about. But wait, there's more. The method of curing this disease required, at the time, the doctors to use a small rod or a stick to puncture a hole near the exit point of the worm, twist it around like your mom's spaghetti, like Eminem told you, and pull that f***ing thing out. Ugh, knees Perhaps. weak, arms are heavy. Exactly. Mom's spaghetti. So in context to what Moses did, raising the snake upon a stick might just be him pulling out a worm from people's feet. Either way, the icon of a snake or a worm around the stick makes so much sense as a healing method, both for physical health and for spiritual healing. I mean, as is Moses we're talking about, he may have learned it from those Egyptian priests after all. He changed the staff into a snake too, so it's like, it's common. Yeah, him and his brother Aaron, snake staff people, definitely. And who else will they have learned it from besides Thoth? You know, some people say that Thoth is Moses, and I think they're right. Because then you also have Thoth Moses or Thoth Thoth Musay or something like that. Tutmos. Tutmos. It's like Thoth Moses. Now, Asclepius is known for more than just his birth and for bringing snakes back to life, isn't he? Yes, he cured many, many people, according to myth. 
Let's talk about some and, of those cases. Right. So in another act that brings more attention to Asclepius, we'll get into the consequences of his actions later. I wanted to talk about the time that he helped the god of wealth, whose name's Plutus, to cure his blindness. Because Zeus, in his endless loop of dick moves, blinded Plutus so that the wealth he distributed was done without ever having a clear intention on who he was giving it to. Just like the United States today. Exactly. It sounds kind of nice, but it also prevented Plutus from ever using his power for good because he had no idea what he was distributing. He was blind. Boy, this sounds spot on. It sounds on the money, if you will. With the help of... Sorry, I should preface this. So this myth that I'm talking about here is actually a play, but it's from 388 BC. It's called Plutus. It's about the god of wealth. And I should say that myths and plays from the same era, I don't really see a difference between them. It's the same thing. So the way that this play goes is that two Athenian men helped Plutus take a trip to an Asclepian temple to cure the blindness so that Plutus could spread the wealth even now, there's many implications to have here, but it should be noted that these two Athenian men were poor their whole lives, and they wanted wealth for themselves. Maybe Greece knew that the way the gods operate was a capitalistic society, and us lower humans wished and dreamed of a perfect socialist society. So maybe this is a play that's trying to express that, at least in its first act. And yeah, Zeus gets what he wants. That's what we know. We do know that. He's an eagle, too, like America. So the play goes on to say that his entourage, the two Athenian men, were told to rest on beds of leaves. Blind Plutus is put on the very couch that Asclepius would place his own patients on. The priests at the temple then place a veil or piece of cloth over all the heads of all the patients. And they told everybody at night to go to sleep and rest and don't remove your cloth. One of the Athenian men, whose name is Cario, couldn't help but look through one of the holes that was in his cloth. And while everybody was sleeping, Cario witnessed Asclepius at work, combining herbs and applying special ointments, oiling people up. You know, kind of basic stuff. But when Asclepius came upon Plutus, the god of wealth, it got kind of interesting. Plutus had a purple cloth placed over his face, and Asclepius then had two snakes slither their way under the cloth and lick Plutus's eyes. <laughs> this is some Japanese porn? You know, let's be silly for a second. I think Asclepius just busted a load on uh, each of uh, Plutus's <laughs> eyes. Yeah, no, no, that was a snake. Yeah, it was... Uh... You know, when they lick stuff, it heals things. Trust me. Yeah, you couldn't see it because you were blind, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah you're yeah. right, Asclepius. I, I, I'm going to go take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worth it to note that in the play, it states that the snake saliva is similar to phoenix tears, which mythically are known to have, you know, a regenerative and a healing power naturally. And I think that it's worth it to also note that a phoenix is usually associated with fire. So when a phoenix sheds tears, what exactly is that? That's quite a mystery in itself. Itself. And when you look into like Phoenix Tears as like a remedy, you kind of only find it in like Harry Potter lore and like weird anime lore. Well, Thoth heals Horus's eye by spitting in it. Oh, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. So as we can see, this symbolism and the myth kind of isn't really exclusive to the Greeks. There's a lot more to say underlying, I think, here. Well, could he see he after that? Yeah. Plutus immediately sprung up, shouting how he can see now, and it woke everybody up. After which, Asclepius just silently drifted off into the night like a snake, with no one seeing him, of course, except Cario. And that's how Italy became a socialist utopia. So to continue to try to paint a picture of the temple area that Asclepius demanded, there were statues of other gods in the Pantheon. These cult members had special reverence for both Hypnos and Morpheus, gods of sleep and the latter of dreams. This is, of course, because the cult doctors or patients would 
fall into a deep sleep or a trance, and begin to dream. Within the dream, they had visions of Asclepius in the form of a sacred snake, which would provide the method of cure for the patient. Brilliant. Man, how cool would that be? Be Like, in order to figure out how to treat your patient, instead of going to the library and reading books, or going on, like, PubMD and trying to read studies, you just, like, take a bunch of illicit substances and trip out. Sign me up! Astral visions of snakes, sacred to Asclepius. Just, if you have one, don't be afraid. It's Lucifer! Ah! Oh, he healed my bunions! <laughs> and details of this just mentioned myth are similar to yet another alternate version of how Asclepius helped a snake once. A snake? Yeah, he kind of just was testing his healing abilities. And then when the snake was healed, it kind of just went up Asclepius's body and then whispered in his ear the secret knowledge. So what's his secret knowledge? Of course, the method resurrection. So this led... Apollodorus, who was a historian of the time, to write about this in many myths, explaining where he learned how to resurrect people. And many versions of this exist, but Apollodorus says that Asclepius was given Gorgon blood by Athena, and this may or may not have been the legendary Gorgon Medusa or one of her sisters. So to get into a little bit more detail, it said that the blood from the left side of the Gorgon had the power to completely destroy somebody, hmm. and that the blood from the right side could cure or resurrect people. Left-hand path, right-hand path, maybe. Hmm. Uh, I don't quite know. But the point is, eventually Asclepius gets that Jesus zombie wizard power that he can summon people up from the dead, like f***ing Rathma from Diablo 4. Hail Rathma! And in the game, Rathma's, like, animal is a snake, so oh. they did their research. So, like, necromancy powers. He's the first necromancer in Diablo. Yep. Okay. And through the teachings of a dragon snake thing is where he learned it. Kind of right on the money for Asclepius. And Rathma's name means the balancing force, like scales. Scales of a snake, maybe? It's a nice little poem. Oh, we'll get to the scales, because that does come up in this episode. The ones of Libra, the ones you're referring to. Oh, yes. Just had to put it there. So all told, there's a number of interesting details in all these myths of Asclepius worth unpacking. For instance, we can see right away, Asclepius spent his early years receiving higher education from the world's best instructors, a feat now formerly expected of doctors who wish to possess the same power. Then, mythologically speaking, it sounds like Asclepius was also the product of the world's first emergency C-section, a form of medical surgery, and the etymological DNA of his name, which means to cut open. Whoa! And then his wet nurse, Lechisa, the teat from which he suckled, she's a Mori, one of the fates, and specifically the middle sister that's responsible for measuring the thread that determines the length of a mortal's lifespan. Presumably, if you're in good with Asclepius, he might put in a word with his, quote, mom to add some length to that string. Right, because he's Mori, or the sisters of fate, had a loom, and they were like stringing things, and that was all of existence, and your fate was all part of the weaving of time. And so each mortal has a certain amount of heartbeats or seconds left on the clock or days they have to live based on the length of their string. So of course, if you go see Asclepius, he can lengthen it a little bit. Right. And you can argue that that very action is like healing. That's what medicine is, is lengthening the length of the string. So we've established that Asclepius is quite the profound healer and necromancer. I just want to present one last story to drive this in home. So this one is about a woman with a very gnarly stomach worm. She goes through some trials. She goes through all these treacherous terrain and tests herself mentally and physically to get to one of Asclepius's temples for aid because she's in a lot of pain. She brings offerings. She does everything. She takes the ritual bath, sleeps, tries to wait for the snake in her dreams. But Asclepius, this time, he does not answer. The woman's in a lot of pain and the priests are kind of desperate and willing to take the risk and test their abilities and see if they could 
appease their God that maybe this is a test for them, right? Maybe Asclepius is testing his devotees and see if they can heal this woman. So the priest took it into their own hands. And they promised the woman that they were going to get this worm out of her stomach. So to do this, they had her fall asleep. Then they chopped off her head. Whoa! Dang. You know, and this works, of course, if you're trying to get the worm out of his stomach, because you just stick your arm into the torso and, you know, feel it out, and maybe you pull out an intestine, you thought it was a worm, but eventually you, you could get the worm, and they got the worm. Because they knew what they were doing, right? Well, good for them! Yeah, it's just one problem. That chick is dead. Is she, she dead? dead. She's, she's done. Chopped her head off, boys. And, you know, not just dead. She had no head. So can't just bring back a body, right? You need the body and the head. So Asclepius rolls up on the scene, you know, with his great sense of timing, finally answering the prayers of this dying woman. He gets pretty pissed off when he arrives because, of course, his devotees, his priests, they f up. <laughs> we got the worm out, though. That was what she asked us to do. He just really didn't understand why they would resort to such a method. Prognosis negative. So he got to work, Mr. Asclepius, on this impossible task. Asclepius used a salve to kind of glue or heal the severed head back to the body. Nothing a healthy dollop of salve couldn't take care of. Success. Next, he used a magic snake herb to bring her back to life. Now, as this story goes, this was the last straw for the great healer. Zeus had to do something. This is quite ridiculous of the necromancy spell here. And Asclepius seems to be just showing everybody how to do this shit to other mortals to defy Hades and mix everything up in the afterlife. Yes, in fact, this incredible ability basically just earned him a deadly lightning bolt from Zeus, who became tired of the overpopulation issue, which his skill had suddenly become responsible for. And, you know, all these lives that Asclepius is saving, Hades is for every single one of them, according to the, some of the stories, is like, hey, Zeus, look at this f He just took another soul for my domain. Hey, Zeus, look at this f you know, and it's just like Zeus got pissed off and he got annoyed. He had to do something. It's like public school. If they don't come down here, I'm not getting paid, Zeus. So this lightning bolt that he sends down this time kills both Asclepius and the woman. Boom, double kill. Oh my goodness, Zeus. And that must feel constrained for that lady because it's like hey i'm back oh no I'm, oh, I'm gone never mind <laughs> <laughs> nope it doesn't now none of the other gods gave apollo any heads up that his son was marked for death by zeus's hand <laughs> and when apollo saw his son's dead body he got very angry that's not good you don't want to piss off the sun no he went and he killed the cyclopses who were the forge masters that made the very lightning bolts that zeus threw down on poor people <laughs> oh hit him right in the capitalism zeus was pissed <laughs> and there's a whole myth about what happened to apollo after this but apollo didn't bite his tongue he called out zeus basically calling him a horrible grandfather and praising his slain son asclepius's countless good deeds across the world you know what would you do if people didn't have good health they wouldn't praise you god mr zeus <laughs> my son was keeping them alive to praise us more you idiot zeus felt very sad and stupid and he realized that apollo was correct so because of this, he immediately made Asclepius into the constellation Ophiuchus, the serpent holder. This is the sign that they always claim is the 13th sign of the Zodiac. So for those of you with keen ears, you may have already noticed this story might be another prime mythological example of the conflict between the uplifting serpent who wishes to heal humanity and the
and the oppressive eagle, in this case Zeus, who opposes this support in the name of maintaining absolute control over their destiny, just like Enki and Enlil of Sumerian myth. This is especially true when we consider the big falling out between Enki and Enlil did have to do with the lifespan and proliferation of humans. Then, if we were to gaze up at the constellation Ophiuchus, we would see this conflict written in the stars, as the snake bearer is right next to none other than Aquilus, the eagle constellation. Down near his leg also whirls the eagle nebula, and finally, Scorpio is wedged under his foot. This is interesting because, as we've mentioned maybe once or twice, Scorpio is often symbolized by an eagle in the zodiac. For instance, we see Scorpio depicted as an eagle in the traditional Rider Waite edition of the tarot in the corner of Atu 21, the world. Here, as it does in the pentagram ritual, the eagle of Scorpio is meant to depict the western quadrant of the sky associated with the element of water, but also death and the underworld, as this is the place where the sun sets each evening. These associations are well represented in the tarot by the way of the death card, which is associated with the zodiacal sign of Scorpio. The Hebrew letter associated associated with the death card is also the letter Nun, which means fish, but also it means the primordial waters of creation, which are likewise called Nun. If we consider the incredible age of the story of the Flood and its association with death, the overlap of these symbols begin to make a lot of sense. Remember, it was Enlil, symbolized by the eagle, who cursed us with shorter lifespans and death. Nun is also the first letter of the Hebrew word for eagle, Nesher, which Curiously, can also mean vulture, a carrion bird who, for obvious reasons, has long been associated with death and is seen as an unclean bird. In my opinion, this is very likely the punchline lurking behind Kanye West's new album, Vultures, which prominently displays the Byzantine double-headed eagle as its brand symbol. You know, I don't really listen to that kind of music, but you've told me the myth that Kanye is writing on and the fact that this is Vultures now, like, and you just drove it in home. He knows about this shit. This is Kanye stuff that he feels is uh, important. So his whole career for the past 10 years, it seems, is all about this. He's become a bit of a meme for the whole rabbit. We like to joke and make fun of him a little bit, but... If you just take a cursory look at his career, I'm not like the hugest fan. I've just glimpsed over every few years to see what's going on. And from what I can tell, you know, it's, it's Jesus, right? It's the bear, like maybe the dipper, swastika. <clears throat> and then what else has he got? He's got, he went through his raw stage when he did power. He had, you know, the sun god on his freaking necklace. Could have been Horus too, you know, whatever. Oh, not... Not Raw, like R-A-W, Raw is War, because if you are a WWF fan, the fact that they say Raw <laughs> is War, isn't that kind of funny? No, anyway, the Monday sun nights, deity from It's Egypt. the War God. Yes. Yeah, War and, yeah, the sun, you know, Raw. Okay, fine. And then he goes over Jesus as king. Okay, now he's got another solar god, Jesus. Okay, well, now he's over here doing Vulture, right? Vultures, the eagle, more sun deities. What's with all this sun stuff, Kanye? Why? why? But... Now that I've said that, it's interesting because vultures and eagles being the same word, well, vultures are, like I said, they're seen as unclean. They're like gross and they like put their heads inside corpses like wriggle around. It, yeah, it's like a antithesis of what an eagle should be. It's like an eagle behaving like a snake on the ground, being dirty, yes. lowly, you know, eating dead. In some ways, it almost seems like a confession. Everyone's on his ass for posting pictures of his waifu naked on Instagram. And he's like, he's like, yeah. I like booty. What you mad about? You could post your wife's booty. I like booty. Like he's saying, I'm unclean. You know, I like bad stuff, <laughs> basically. Especially Hitler. 
How about that one? Now, of course, it's not just in the Hebrew language. We might ask where they got this from. Of course, we have to look to ancient Egypt. So to get a better idea, Heka, who is the vulture in ancient Egypt? Well, in reference to like the eagle versus snake topic, the first vulture goddess that comes to mind is Nekbet. So she's the goddess of Upper Egypt. And the goddess of Lower Egypt was the snake Wadjet, which has to do with sight. I think that's interesting because Upper Egypt is like the sky. Lower Egypt, like the earth. So you have, of course, a bird for the upper and then a snake for the lower. It's kind of interesting, too, because upper Egypt is actually south and then lower Egypt is north because the Nile flows from south north. So up the river is actually going south. You can kind of think of the vulture as being like the feminine version of the eagle. It's a very solar bird. And the word for vulture is actually the same word for mother in ancient Egypt, which is Mut. And Mut is also in and of herself her own goddess. Uh, If you take the vulture as being the feminine solar counterpart to the masculine solar eagle or falcon, you basically have the lady eagle being the vulture. And with the mythology of ancient Egypt, vultures were kind of regarded as being mothers of immaculate conception, like they conceived through the self. So they're kind of virginal in a way. And this is also why their cult center or her cult center, Nekbet, was Nekeb. And that's the capital of the third gnome, Neken, which if you look at the Egyptian zodiac is related to Virgo. So this is kind of a feminine, virginal, eagle, sun, birth, mother. The interesting thing about Nekbet is because she's almost always paired with Wadjet, the snake goddess, the two of them were known as the two ladies. So you see them together a lot. And in many of these depictions, they're actually shown as two snakes. So even though you have a snake and a vulture, you also have Nekbet being depicted as a cobra alongside the cobra goddess Wadjet. I think it was Luke that brought up earlier a depiction of Thoth in Betty the First yes. uh, at Abidos. So these two snakes would be the two snakes that are shown on the staffs in that depiction. So one of those snakes is actually technically a lady eagle. Oh. Yeah. So it's not as simple as like snake good, eagle bad. Like right, right. it's a lot more nuanced than that. And that also goes back to Heka, like I brought up the last episode where Heka was depicted holding two snakes. So this is the dual manifestation and the harmony of both of them. And we even see that same wielding of the two snakes in a lot of the Harpocrates Stella. So this is where the child Horus is standing on the crocodiles and he's holding a snake in each hand. And it kind of symbolizes the victory in overcoming venoms and the dangers of his trials, which is obviously related to healing. Horus in and of himself, in so much he's related to the sun, dies and is reborn. And he's also like the re-resurrection of his dad, Osiris. Yeah, I also don't personally think of Jesus as being solely serpent because Jesus is also the divine child. So he would also be Horus, a falcon. So he's he's also both eagle and serpent. I think that's pretty profound because I, I agree completely, but Jesus is coming from the perspective of the snake of the lowly human trying to find its way up. And that's why his message is more important than anything else in this perhaps aeon or age. There's kind of a recognition that, yeah, we have come far, but we still are lowly. And, you know, kind of through Jesus's philosophy, humanity's saved. And I can agree with that, especially if we consider all the things that we're presenting in episodes like this. If you want to think of it like if Jesus is Horus, the falcon, the divine child, then his reign is both sanctified by and protected by serpent wisdom. You kind of also see that reflected in ancient Egypt 
Egypt with the two Uraeus cobras that crown the heads of kings. So the kings were often identified with Horus and with Ra, right? And yet it's serpents that crown their heads. But it's not entirely uncommon to find a vulture head as well next to the serpent, right? Right. Or even having a vulture headdress where it looks like a vulture is wrapped around their head with a Uraeus serpent coming out of the front of it. That's also common. There's also Horus occasionally depicted with two heads. So you have the two-headed falcon or the, the two-headed eagle, and that represents Horus and Set. And of course, Horus being related to Lower Egypt and Set being originally a god of Upper Egypt. There's a union between the two of them that you see in the double eagle. But there's also, because Horus is a god of Lower Egypt or represents Lower Egypt, the snake also represents Lower Egypt with Wajet. And then you have Set and Upper Egypt being related to the vulture. So there's this kind of duality in both of them as it is. And even Set has links to snakes in an adversarial capacity. Um, there's a story of how Horus learns Ra's true name. And that's basically agents of Set in the form of snakes go and bite Horus. And then Isis has to try to get a, a cure for this. So she decides to fashion a snake out of clay that bites the sun god Ra. And then she tricks Ra into telling her, or Horus rather, his true name. She has the cure for it because she fashioned the snake that bit Ra. So it's kind of like there's a lot of snakes also involved in set. So you've got this duality of eagle snake, eagle snake. And then there's <laughs> eagles become snakes, snakes become eagles. So to me, it's kind of like if you are as Thoth, or in other words, possessed of wisdom, then it kind of sounds a little bit like the, you know, that there's two wolves inside of you joke yeah <laughs> yeah so it's kind of like there are two snakes inside of you one is a vulture together they're winged serpents and there's two eagles inside of you both of them are snakes and there's two snakes inside of you both of them are eagles <laughs> that's that's the way <laughs> one is gay and the other is gay no fake and gay that's the one. <laughs> what if you'd like to hear the rest of the episode where we talk about the scorpion upon which the serpent bearer's foot is resting? More about biblical Genesis, the phoenix, the Bennu bird, some gosh dang old Hebrew gematria, our favorite topic, snake oil, and the grand finale where I read a top secret leak that made its way onto 4chan about what else besides Sumerian overlord UFOs in the ocean. Then please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit where your monthly donation of just five bucks will not only get you the extended version of this show, you'll get all of our extended shows going back before the 20s. I'll send you a five by five high quality vinyl sticker of our big bunny Baphomet cover art and you'll get the secret keys to our discord temple where you can let dogs and snakes lick you wherever you want. Mostly. <laughs> My eyeball? Yes. And remember, everybody, you've got two eagles inside of you. One that eats carrots and the other that shoots lasers. Pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs>